0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is David Feingold, the president of Chatham University and your host for the Future of Higher Education podcast on the New Books Network. I'm here today with my friend, uh, uh, Michael Alexander, the president of LaSalle University. Michael, great to have you on the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me here, David
0: would you mind starting just sharing a little uh, with folks about your, your own background growing up, where you grew up, where you went to school?
1: Uh, Well, as a, I, I, this could go on a little ways, but you know, I, I I was, uh, I grew up in the Columbus, Ohio area, but I was actually born in Springfield, Ohio, and I spent the first year of my life in the president's house at Antioch College, which is kind of an interesting little fact considering where I ended up and that I live in a president's house now. Um, And my father, my grandfather was uh, vice president, dean of the faculty for 30 some years at Antioch, twice interim president. And I was close to him since the time I was a little kid. I can remember him, you know, in the 50s when I was just a child telling me, Small colleges need other sources of revenue besides tuition. <laughs> so those of us who think that's a new phenomenon, you know, I'm sorry. It comes up about every 20 years. Uh, grew up in the Columbus, Ohio area. My father uh, was a zookeeper who who did, couldn't make enough money when he had four children, so became a stockbroker. Uh, my mother was a school guy. guy school psychologist in fact became the most well-known school psychologist in the country wow. because she found and was the first president of the national association of school psychologists when they broke away from the um uh american psychological association and um so um i uh, ended up going to a private boys school in columbus um played you know th- athletes of all three seasons and uh and and uh was lucky enough to go on to harvard uh, for an undergraduate where i studied the history and literature of america sometime in that time while i was at harvard i know perhaps before because of my grandfather I knew I wanted to be a small college president, mm-hmm. and so I went to graduate school um, and studied higher education, trying to take the direct path, you know, uh, and so I master's work and doctoral work, both in higher education, and I worked in higher education for nine years before life took me down, you know, one of those unexpected serendipitous paths.
0: And where, where did it take you to?
1: Well, uh, for a couple of reasons, but the primary one being my wife and I, you know, struggling to coordinate our careers. I followed her to Los Angeles. And before I knew it, I was working for one of the Hollywood studios, MCA Universal. Uh, and, uh, they, they hired me as an experiment an educator, right. To, to teach uh, me the business. And before I knew it, I was running companies for them. They, I moved back to New York to run USA network when it was in its infancy and set it up the way it still pretty much runs today, the way I set it up back then. Uh, and now is extremely successful. Of course, we bought a New York TV station. So I ran a New York TV station, oversaw that oversaw the Brad broadcasting division, um, ultimately mca was bought by a japanese company and japanese companies can't own broadcast interests i mean foreign companies can't own broadcast interests in this country and so we spun my division off into a separate public company so i ran a public broadcasting company for a few years till it was sold to a larger broadcasting company i took those winnings and bought a technology company a a public company it took private moved to up here to cambridge massachusetts to run that company and uh and built that up over four and a half years to be, uh, f- five times the size it was 28 times the cash flow, and ultimately sold that, uh, to a larger company. Um, all, and then I ran, I started and ran a film distribution company. Now all that time I was running companies, 25 years, I was running companies that kept doing it cause I was good at it, successful. And people kept asking me to do it. And, um, but I kept my hand in. I was on the on the board of Bloomfield College in Bloomfield, mm-hmm. New Jersey. I was on the board of Antioch University, which is not Antioch College, Antioch University, which included Antioch College and five graduate schools spread across the country. Uh, I helped to found two foundations that had to do with uh, education. And I read the Chronicle of higher education <laughs> all those years because I really wanted to be a small college president. And then late in life, I, I, uh, while I was running the film distribution company, I got approached about – competing for the job at LaSalle, which was just 20 minutes from my home, a miracle occurred. I got the job. I'm now in my 15th year.
0: Great. And and what were you doing those nine years in higher ed before you went off into the, the film and TV industry?
1: I started in student services, really, in residence life. Uh, actually, it started even before my first job because one of my mentors was, um, was an, an, an associate dean at Harvard who kind of took me under his wing and, uh, and used me as a peer counselor before there were peer counselors. And we had a, a, a fellow student, a, a classmate, a friend of mine who was a bipolar. We didn't call it that back then. But, um, and uh, he solicited my help in trying to keep him in school. Because he was bright enough he could do the work, but his disease, you know, made it hard. And we succeeded in that, and then so he started using me for others. So before I even graduated, I, I ended up being a resident director of a house at Smith College, believe it or not. With, I was married, my wife and I ran a house of 72 women at Smith, and, um, and that got me started. I, I, um, so I worked at Smith College. I, worked, I got my master's degree at Ohio State, so I worked, I worked at Ohio State and uh, taught, did some teaching there, too. Um, went back to Harvard, where I well in between I I did a stint uh, doing consulting for the University of Indonesia for a year. Huh. Uh, that that was an interesting assignment. Then I went back to Harvard as an assistant dean of freshmen, kind of the the same role that my mentor had had before. He was still there, but they brought me in kind of the same role uh, as he had at the time that I was an undergraduate. Um, and um, so uh, that that was that was a live living in the freshman dorms, you know, kind of position doing counseling and advising and, and overseeing this, the, the residence life staff. Um, so a lot of it was that, and then, but, um, as I was pursuing my doctorate in, uh, at the Harvard graduate school of education, um, my wife moved to New York and we commuted, we commuted for a year and that was emotionally too difficult. So I ended up going to work, uh, at Barnard college as an executive assistant to the president. So, those jobs all together and that experience took about took about nine years.
0: And that must have been an interesting sort of training ground for what you went on to do in terms of be, being right there working with the president at Barnard.
1: Well, more than you could imagine uh, because there was a lot of turmoil then. So we're talking about the late 70s at a time when most of the women's colleges had merged or converted to co-ed and Barnard had not. Of course, Barnard's different because it's affiliated with Columbia. That you could take Columbia, could take Columbia courses. There was some crossover in dormitory life, um, but Columbia felt that they were at a disadvantage because they were still all men, and they were having enrollment problems. Believe it or not, Columbia having enrollment yep. problems in the late '70s. So they wanted Barnard to formally merge with them. And um, the president, the faculty, the alums of Barnard didn't want to do that. And the president had done a really good job of build, you know, Barnard was in, in good shape at the time. It was very strong and had a great faculty. And, uh, and, um, and um, the, the board of Barnard, though, was mostly older white men who'd gone to Columbia. Mm-hmm. There, were Bar, there, were Bar, there were Barnard alums on the board, but they, every one of them worked for one of those men in their professional life. You know, like was a lawyer who worked for the managing director of of that firm, right? Uh, who was on the board, and um, so the board really want the board wanted uh, Barnard to merge, uh, but they, but the, the the president stood in the way, mm-hmm. and of course I had been working for the president. I was I was uh, so what they, they actually fired her. Without cause, for no reason, wouldn't give a reason. It really damaged her career because people assumed all kinds of nefarious things that weren't true. And I was left there as the one person who knew everything was going on. Wow! And so I had to deal with the board, uh, this board that had their priorities screwed up. Mm. And uh, so that was quite an experience, and and not exactly the kind of lesson in ethical decision making that you would expect from an institution of higher education. Right. And interesting that you retained, despite going through that at such a young point in your
0: career, the ambition to take on a job like that at some point.
1: Well, I told you there were a couple of reasons that I that I ended up, you know, my career going down another path. And um, one was one was yeah, one was because uh, you know coordinating our careers, and the other was because that was a disoriented disorienting experience. Mm the the board actually tried to do things to weaken Barnard and I I called them on it and uh threatened to go public with it with the New York Times and and ultimately we came to an agreement that they would they would restore the financial aid budget they would not do the things that they were planning to do as long as I left <laughs> <laughs> and so that was the deal they would they would uh restore the financial aid budget make sure Barnard wasn't didn't come up short on their class the next fall as long as I resigned, so so it was a it was disheartening. You know, I my previous work had been at Harvard, where where you know honesty and integrity are the very you know very first thing. You know, at Harvard, if you if you if you even lie to an officer like me, you are out. You know, you are suspended. I mean, just I mean, you just can't do it. And here we have here we have the board being disingenuous, or worst. So yep. so that was a disoriented thing. Um, when I was in California, I needed to get a job. I, I, I actually got four job offers in the same week and one of them was from Caltech. Um, but, um, but I needed to make money at that point and I knew I could make more money at the at the studio. Plus MCU University hired me without a job and that was really interesting. Uh, plus we had gotten involved in the whole Hollywood scene cause my wife was an actress and so, um, things happen when you're young.
0: <laughs> yeah. No, so, so tell us, how, how did the LaSalle opportunity come about? You'd been away from, even though you'd kept boards and other things, you'd been away from higher ed for a very long time then. Um, you know, Had you looked at other presidencies before that, or was this a particular circumstance?
1: Well, um, I told you I was on the board of Bloomfield College um, with a long-serving 15-year president, and I was the chair of the Academic Affairs Committee. And one day he says to me, you know, you'd make a good college president. <laughs> and I said, you know, well, you know, that's what I really always want to be. So he introduced me to um, to someone at, uh, to one of the search people who do small college searches at Academic Search, a guy who was, um, you know, experienced in the business, but nearing retirement. And he interviewed me, he said, you know, you'd be a good small college president. <laughs> and I said, so he said, uh, we'd like to, you know, put you in our database and, and, and include you because people are looking for... They like, a lot of places like to have um, non-traditional candidates in their pool. And, uh, but then he did an unusual thing. He introduced me to the other search people in his firm. And then he introduced me to search people at competing firms. Really, you know, just a one, I told you, he's a wonderful guy. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, that was proof. And this guy I had only met, you know, like months before. And so, the, so all the search firms that do small colleges got to know me. So I, I, okay, they would approach me and occasionally I, if it was some place I thought I could get my wife to go, I would, I would apply cause I wasn't going to be, we weren't going to be separated right. again. You know. Yeah. And, um, and the, um, um, and so I, you know, one time I got to be a finalist, but I didn't get the job. Uh, place not far from you actually. <laughs> and, um, and, the, and then, um, and then I'd gone off and started this film distribution company. I got older. I kind of thought that had, my opportunity had passed. And then one day Isaac Miller calls me out of the blue and says, Hey, you know, would you like to, you know, put your hat in the ring for this job at LaSalle? And, and I looked into it and found that, you know, I drove by it 10 times a week and, you know, and um it didn't, despite the fact that I considered myself a small college kind of expert, I I didn't know much about LaSalle, but when I looked into it, I said, Whoa, that's interesting. They're, they're poised to take off if with the right kind of leadership. I applied, and as I said, a miracle occurred because I got the job. I say that because the finalists were – there were four finalists. Two of them were sitting presidents. One had been a president two places already. The third was um, was a 39-year-old African-American woman who was the dean at, at Douglas College, the head of Rutgers. And, uh, and I said, well, with that competition, I, I maybe give myself a 10% chance. But, you know, when you come back and go through the gauntlet of the finalists to be there for a day and a half, it's kind of a, it kind of levels the playing field. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think they just felt like I was the best fit and I got the job and it's worked out really well. So, so, so tell that 39-year-old person, uh, by the way, is someone you might know. Is uh, Carmen, Cadet.
0: I'm guessing. Carmen, yeah. yes. Is yeah. now, is yeah. now Went the on to uh, be Oberlin president.
1: First, first Cedar Crest and is now the president of Oberlin. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: No, absolutely. We worked together at Rutgers when Douglas went through what you were describing with Barnard, right? She was, she was, she was there at that time. So. Right. Yeah. So, so tell us what, 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 what did what was LaSalle like when you when you came there 15 years ago? What was the, you know, what, what was the state of the college? What was it that you saw in the potential there? Because it's not easy, right? I mean, this is the most crowded higher ed market in the country in boston and so um you know trying to figure out how you're going to compete successfully there obviously what would be a challenge
1: well lasalle is the second oldest institution of higher education in the boston area meaning inside i-95 after harvard so it's been around a long time but for most of that time it was a two-year college for women in the 70s you know women's colleges and two-year colleges went out of favor you know, as, as we said before about Barnard, most of them merged or became co-ed. Uh, LaSalle didn't. It just became weak. It just became small and weak. And by the mid-80s, it was down to three, four, under 400 students. It was on the verge of closing. And my predecessor came in and, and um, had, you know, uh, both academic and financial experience and and, and kind of said, well, we're not going to spend any more money than we have, first of all, and then we're going to be carefully bring it back. And so right away they became a four-year institution. Ten years later became a co-educational institution They had the brilliant idea of starting a retirement community on land that they owned, which has been extremely successful. 2003 started the graduate program. So made changes, but also were very careful with their resources, really pinching pennies all the way along and bootstrapping everything. So when I showed up, I saw in 2007, there was something that uh, it was in a position where it kind of had gotten solid and had a, you know between a 1,000 and 1100 students and, and was, um, you know, had a balanced budget, uh, but they had been pinching pennies. And I, I said, you know, and along with the team that was there, uh, we said, Hey, it's time to make some strategic investments and do, you know, at risk and try and create growth. And, um, so, so I was in the, uh, in the position of, uh, with, with the team of being able to do that. Um, the graduate program had 40 students at the time, now it has 800 right i mean it it had um the we we basically doubled everything in the first 10 years um and um and some of that's more than doubled now uh the um so it it you know so we've made investments we some of them didn't work right uh some many of them did and um and we've been able to to grow substantially the the endowment's almost triple what it was The, the the budgets double the the faculty doubled in size. the The enrollment whole, total enrollments, you know, double. If you count both undergraduate and graduate, is about double. Um, so, um, so it's been successful. the The last couple of years, of course, have been more challenging. Sure. Uh, and we have we have been affected by COVID. And there's no doubt about it.
0: Yeah. So. I, I like to come back to a number of things you, you just touched on, but but can you t- tell us a little more about that initial strategic plan? So when you got there, it sounds like your predecessor had done a great job of stabilizing and growing the institution, added a number of key elements. So how did you sort of, because you weren't just new to LaSalle, but this was a, you know, you'd, you'd thought about being a college president for, for most of your life, but this was new coming in there how did you go about sort of figuring out what the key initial priorities were going to be what, what what did that look like in terms of that first plan
1: well as i said i'd been running companies for 25 years reporting to boards for 25 years i'd been on boards both public private companies and higher education boards so i kind of knew a lot of the parts and the job you know, people ask all the time, what's the difference? Is it, the job is 90% the same. It's, it's it's not as different as you might guess. And I had developed an expertise in strategic planning, but I had my own approach. And so one of the first things uh, we did was embark on a strategic plan. There, there wasn't any recent one at LaSalle. And... Um, and within the first four months, went through the whole process and got it approved by the board. It's a, it's an approach that doesn't take a long period of time. It doesn't give you one of these thick things you put on a shelf and there. No, it's it's thin. It's direct. It's high level. But what it really is is gets the whole community marching in the same direction. After your common goals for a common purpose. And uh, and it's very um, specific in that the goals have to be measurable or concrete. They have to be something that's new, not just continuing to do something you're already good at. Um, and um, measurable, I think you know what that means. Concrete means at the end of whatever period you've designed this plan to cover, that you can be able to tell whether you achieved it or not, rather than it just being someone's opinion. There are actually good strategies and goals that you can come up with that are just that you can't tell. but but that's not what we do in our process. And literally, we got hundreds of people involved. And so we had a plan. And people, you know, um, but, and it culminates in a three-day meeting where they're representatives of every constituency. At the end, they get up and all agree that they're going to work together to achieve this plan. And when you do that, it usually happens. Last spring, uh, we created our fourth plan since I've been here. The other three, we used them up usually before the period was up. So that means we achieved 90 or 95% of the goals. One or two we didn't achieve. Uh, one or two we we could, we were almost we could see it was going to be achieved. And that's been a consistent pattern. Mm-hmm.
0: Great. And so so what w- what have been some of the, the the really key milestones in those first three plans you did that that you're most proud of having achieved?
1: Well, one, one, um, that comes to mind, uh, right away is, uh, diversifying the, um, uh, the community. I think we had 13% racially minoritized students when I came and we set a goal of get 18% in the first five years of, uh, of my being there. Uh, f- faculty was 4%. Uh, the, uh, board was 4%. The staff was f- about four. They were all under 5%. Um, and, uh, but I had experience from doing that and they actually won awards for di- diversifying companies. And I had a particular approach for doing that, that, that I kind of taught LaSalle, you know, how to do. And, um, and we blew those numbers away. We blew those goals away, way before the five years. And, uh, you know, now we're 30%, you know, minority students, uh, we got up to 28% minority faculty. It's probably 23, 24 now. One of the things is when you're successful, that people come and steal your sure. steal your faculty. Yeah. Staff hasn't gotten quite that high, but it, it um, but it got up. Uh, I think it's uh, – I don't know what it is this year because we, we – it's gone up this year, but I think last year was 18%. Uh, and the board is um, over 20% uh, minority. So, um, so, um, so we're certainly proud of that because it, it – uh, when, when you're working on inclusion, intercultural competence, and uh, as we all are trying to do, it gives you a real advantage. Um, and uh, now it's harder to change the senior leadership because I had great continuity. I kept the people who were who were there before I came, and they stayed a long time. But now, fourteen plus years later. Know half half the senior ma- management team are minorities. Half are women. Um, so even if you go and look, you know, at our leadership page, you see a, a lot of diversity. So it really helps when you're when you're trying to you know doing the difficult, hard work and uh, work that you have to sustain of helping people understand how to learn from each other's differences, how to use that as a mechanism for growth and personal development, um, and then how to how to identify and and mitigate inequities that are built into your systems, uh, it helps uh, to be able to make that kind of progress or, or be able to demonstrate that you've done it.
0: Yeah, no, no question. So I, I wanted to come back to one of the things you mentioned your predecessor had done was actually how I first got to know you was LaSalle Village. Um, can you tell a little about the, the origins of, of how that um, you know, full service retirement community came to be on the campus and how, how it operates with, with the campus?
1: person remember I said my grandfather told me how small colleges need other sources of revenue well um, the team that was here in 1990 and that my predecessor was in his third year maybe they had a, a, a big plot of land that had been given to them um, with the with the caveat that you couldn't do anything with it for 25 years and in 1990 that 25 years was up. So they said, "What are we going to do with this land?" And um, they weren't in a position yet to build like dormitories or you know things like that. Um, and I, I, it's still a mystery today how they came up with the idea of building a, a retirement community. But they came up with this idea of building a retirement community, and um, uh, as a way to, um, you know, spread the the, the 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 ideal of lifelong learning and make it a reality. We they, we already had to early childhood education programs on campus and uh, and to make and to make more money and to give another revenue stream, frankly. And that was a primary purpose of it. It then took ten years to make it happen because the approval process, you know, um, neighbors and the city said, Oh, a retirement community in the middle of, of this, you know, suburban neighborhood? No, no, you gotta be kidding me. It'd be horrible, you know, the traffic and all these old people around, you know, what I mean? and um, and so there was there was tremendous resistance, but um, but perseverance uh, held. Uh, ha- there are some advantages in the law. One of the things we did was establish uh, LaSalle Village as an educational institution, because the plan, which has uh, been implemented, is that would be that the residents who live there would be required to engage in educational activity virtually every day of their lives for at least 450 hours per year. So think about that. It's more than an hour a day. And that allowed us to, to qualify as an educational institution, which gave us some advantages in zoning. And so we eventually overcame the resistance and, uh, got the thing built. It was, there was originally a development partner as these things usually have. Um, and then, um, something happened that turned out probably was Probably s- seemed horrible when it happened, but it turned out to be a wonderful thing. Is for LaSalle, the development company, as somewhere between 50 and 80% of the construction was done, they went bankrupt. And you got, can you imagine getting that call? Uh, we're filing for bankruptcy tomorrow. But what happened is that allowed LaSalle to buy it out for pennies on the dollar. And so LaSalle owns and operates the village, which means we get to keep all of the benefits, the intergenerational activity. We get to, we get to make sure that that's been built up over 20 years and we get to keep all the money. Uh, and so the two uh, LaSalle village and LaSalle university operate very closely together that I'm the CEO of LaSalle village. The, the person who runs it every day, the president of LaSalle village, you know, reports to me and is a, is a university employee. Um, and um, and it's been extremely successful. One might say the premier, most successful, and certainly unique among retirement communities, perhaps in the world. Uh, so it's it's been a huge success. Um, when I came, it was still in its early years and was still trying to find its feet, you know, especially operationally and financially. But but now it's 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 uh, clicking on all cylinders.
0: And um, you know, I when when I had first heard the story from you about that, the, the idea that in, in many ways, its secret sauce that that the idea of it being an educational institution it, it was in some ways a maneuver to finally get the planning permission to do it, but that that has been a core of its success both financially. But I think you have good good evidence that it's had very very positive health and satisfaction outcomes for the residents. Yes,
1: yeah, so uh, you're right in, in the in. In the mid 90s when trying to get this thing approved it was a, a lawyer who was working for a bright lawyer who was working for um for the university on this project who came up with the idea of building in this requirement applying to for educational status that then would make it eligible under what's called the dover amendment in, in um in massachusetts would then um uh, gives you a significant advantage in getting such projects approved for instance in my time, we've done $100 million worth of construction at LaSalle, so much of which was originally resisted uh, by, you know, the neighbors of the city, all of which eventually got done. So, um, and, and, but that turned out to be genius from an operating point of view. Um, and um, the, uh, what was the second part of what you asked? Oh
0: the the health outcomes
1: the health and, outcomes and, and right
0: satisfaction outcomes
1: yeah. so we also started we haven't we, we received when it opened we received an endowment from a donor of a million dollars to set up a research institute called um, the Fuss Institute for Research on the Study of Aging and Intergenerational Studies and um, it, the hope was to be able to study that but it turned out we couldn't we couldn't get any grant money because there's no control group for what it's so unique. There's no, there's no way to have a control group. Um, but we believe that it, um, and and now it's been there long enough that we believe, um, that it does have, um, uh, benefits. For instance, we've gone now, I think five or six years without a, a single person ending up in a memory care unit. Um, they go straight to death, you know. They, they uh, you know, they skip the memory care unit stage because, uh, um, because, and we think that's because of the, the intellectual activity of going to class every day, and and also the social activity that's attached to that, because you're socially involved. Even during the pandemic, when people couldn't couldn't congregate, we managed to keep the uh, educational element going every day and the social interaction, even though they weren't face to face, and that really uh, also uh, resulted in better, uh, health outcomes than other, other, uh, senior living facilities, uh, anywhere in the country. So it's been, um, we can't prove it still, you, you know, I can't scientifically prove it, but Atul tool who's, you know, considered one of the experts in this yeah. area and, uh, writes from New York. If you look at some of his articles, he's frequently mentioned LaSalle village as, uh, as an example of what he's talking about that, you know in his book being mortal he talks about how you know as as senior living went evolved into assisted living and it kind of took on the goal of keeping people healthy and safe keeping people alive and safe and um, and that had certain outcomes but what he discovered is if a place instead of focusing on that's focus on the quality of life as you age it turns out your quality of your life is better and enjoy it more and And you live longer. (laughs) Uh, So you get better outcomes from focusing on that than you do on directly trying to keep people alive. Um, And LaSalle Village is an example of that. And can
0: you say a little more about the educational component, what those educational activities look like in that 450 hours? I think it's fascinating that by you know, the self-selection that happens where not every senior is going to be looking to be in college for the rest of their lives, but those who are coming in, this is part of what they're signing up for. And so how does that interface with the, with the rest of the university?
1: Well, obviously, it self-selects for people who want that. Uh, So there are people who come and examine it and say, well, I got to go to class every day. No, thanks. I'm going someplace else. But on the other hand, even during the Great Recession, we remain full because there was always demand for what it is we offer. And um, so the options, there are many options. So people, residents of LaSalle Village, they can take any course they want at the college, at the university. There are specific courses that we promote to each time, each semester that we think will they'll they would like and enjoy, but they can sign up for anything. Um, they we have. As people aged in place, sometimes a 15-week course turned out to just be too much to do. So a number of faculty members now offer courses where they've developed a module in the beginning. A lot of our courses are problem-based or project-based, in fact, almost all of them. So they would develop a project, like a three-week project in the middle, and they would invite LaSalle Village residents to come in and just participate in that project or or that activity activity. With the class for those three weeks, so that's another way. We also deliver courses and activities specifically for them in their facility. The Village are sixteen buildings connected by bridges and tunnels, and and each one has some kind of educational facility in it—a a high-tech classroom, a fitness room, an art studio, a woodworking shop—and um, um, <clears throat> all those things count as educational activities, uh, even if you, even if a group goes to the symphony together and comes back and then talks about it afterwards, that counts. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, we, but everybody has to report on their hours and and then we return that into the city because we have to prove that we're an educational institution. We have to keep proving it. I think the last time I looked at the actual average was 550 hours per year. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's, there's all kinds of ways they can fulfill that uh, obligation none of them think it's an obligation you know they're very involved in committees and on boards and stuff you'll be in a meeting with them and, and the meeting will be half over and say well i got to go now cuz my class is starting <laughs> and they, and they always they always prioritize their their class um in fact we have people over 100 years old attending class every day we have people in the skilled nursing facility which means they're supposed to be in kind of the last stage of life who wheel themselves out of there to go to class
0: it's that's awesome. how
1: strong the impulse is how you know yeah. Uh, to um, to participate in that activity,
0: and and you mentioned that one of the core impetus for this was the diversification of revenue. So once it finally got approved and up and running in full, how much of the overall university revenue was coming from this for for for, for
1: the for the institution? Um, well, it's the, the it, it won't, might not seem like a lot. But the uh, I think it's about four percent of the total revenues of the, of the university come from LaSalle village. And then we incur expenses against that. So the, so our, our net for that is, is less, uh, but it's positive. You know, it is a, it is a, from the university's point of view, it's a profit center and they get services from the university for that money that, uh, at a price that's lower than what it would cost them to do it themselves or to obtain it from a third party. Um, for instance, they pay, I think about $250,000 a year for information technology. There's no way they could do it on their own for less than a million. Uh, and uh, so that gives you an idea of the power of shared services between the two organizations. And that, that, that's replicated across education and maintenance and uh, security and technology, right. a number of areas.
0: And when you say 4%, that that's direct things that the, 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 university is providing to it but in terms of the overall because they're all part of one corporation
1: right no that, you, no. no they're not okay. no uh they're two separate 501c3 corporations but there's a holding company over them and the holding company is the sole member of each and ultimately theoretically has control but each of the each of the uh two separate Corporations has its own fiduciary board, its and um, its own um, financial, audited financial statements. Its assets and liabilities are separate, but the management is common. So that's management and services are common. That's how both organizations save money and um, and how the university turns that into a source of revenue and income. Right.
0: So so to ask my question another way, within that overall corporation, the single one, what was the size of LaSalle Village relative to the college or university as, when, when uh, it came?
1: Uh when it well, when it started. Whatever point makes sense. Well, you now, know, what now, now, to to now's what makes sense. Right. Now's what makes sense. If you um it, uh LaSalle Village is about a twenty million dollar operation. Uh that's that's what its budget is. And um the and um the university net of financial aid, if you, if you take the yeah. net, right. uh, is about a $60 million operation. Right. Okay. So it's right. significant. Yeah,
0: absolutely. So there, there are a number of other colleges and universities that have um, retirement communities co-located on them, Penn State. Florida, others, but none as far as I'm aware that's gone anything like the extent you have. Why, why, given the demographics, the huge growth we're seeing in baby boomers, why don't you think there have been other imitators of this given the success of the model?
1: Well, LaSalle Village has gotten publicity all over the world because of this model. Um, it is a, it has a very high rating, you know, both in terms of its its credit rating and its, you know, quality ratings. You know, it has the highest rated skilled nursing facility in the state. It, it um, you know, it has an A rating from Fitch. It, uh, um, and so people have, all over the years, constantly come to look at it. In fact, so much that it got to be a burden, we had to start charging for people to come. But, um and, uh, and they'd say, this is great. We want to do this. And then they found out it wasn't so easy. So um, nobody has been able, the people started out genuinely wanting to replicate it, but they haven't been able to. I think they're, I'm not sure the reasons, but I have theories. One, they usually get pushback from the faculty at the beginning. And LaSalle did too. Lassell did, but Lacelle, But once the faculty started to experience it and learn how to do it, it became, it turned into a positive. Now they love having, you know, residents in their classes. But so like, like many things, the the specter of it was different than the reality. Uh, but I think that I know of institutions where the faculty is just, you know, put up resistance and administration kind of gave in. Um, the other, the other reason I think is because this is the same part way of doing this because these investments to build these places is huge is the same way as to have a partner and those development partners say, you gotta be kidding. We're going to require people to, to go to class. Uh, nobody will sign up. We won't get the pre-sales we need if we do that. Now that's wrong, but that's what they think. And since they're bringing most of the money the, the, the educational institution gives in. Um, uh, now there are two that are, in process that swear they're going to do it. Um, uh, one bear at Barry college, they're building a facility right now and they're in, they're in their pre-sale period. They're in their, they're selling places now. Um, so we'll, we'll have to wait and see, um, if they really pull it off. And the other is, is purchase in New York. Um, which, um, there it's, you know, they had to, they had to actually get approval from the legislature to do this. I mean, it, it took a the long time system, yeah. yeah, by the public system and, and, uh, and I, and the president's changed there. So I, I'm not sure exactly where they are in their process, but I know, uh, at least the previous president, it was his goal to, to try and uh, do this. Now, a lot of them provide access, right? Though, even at Penn yeah. state, you can audit the courses, but there has to be room in the course. You have to get permission and you have to pay extra and not a lot, but you have to pay extra. So there, so we've, you know, more than once we've surveyed, there are over a hundred of them by the way around the country already. And we've, we've surveyed them and, um, and they, they fall into different categories. Sometimes the affiliation is very loose, uh, maybe just a ground lease, you know, uh, uh other times it's, you know, uh, closer, but, um, the, the, the participation rates in education, um, everybody offers some kind of educational uh, activity, uh, ranges from four to twenty percent. At LaSalle village, it's a one hundred percent by definition. Yep.
0: Yeah, we're 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 in the midst of our own experiment with it, so we, we've actually ended up adopting the eco village model from Ithaca, New York on our sustainability campus. So we're about halfway there in deposit. So we've got 18 of the 35 we need for the first phase. But, but I think it will be great. It, this is more multi-generational, but, but it's definitely going to have an emphasis on the intergenerational learning. So, so I wanted to ask you about a couple of the other really innovative things that, that you helped initiate during your tenure. Um, one is a cooperative one, the Low Cost Models Consortium. Um, and so, I'd love to to hear about the, the origins of that, um, how it came about, um, and and sort of how you've seen it evolve.
1: Well, as you know, from your experience, that um, small, you know, small, medium sized colleges and universities meet once a year at the Council for Independent Colleges Presidents Institute, and uh, and you know, I was had you know some experience with collaborative kinds of efforts between institutions, and and. I wanted to talk to some other presidents about the idea of, of getting together to talk about what does it mean that our business model is broken? And if it is, how do, you know, how do we develop new business models? Everybody's talking about it, but I don't see anybody doing anything about creating new models. And so at, um, uh, the meeting was in San Diego that year and, and, uh, Two other presidents and I sat down and talked about it, and they immediately said, "We have to do this. We have to do this." Uh, those were Carol Leary at Baypath and uh, Shirley, Shirley uh, um, uh, what's Shirley Booth? What's Shirley's last name uh, at um, at Houghton College? Any the president of Houghton College, and and they so we all said, "Let's talk to our friends about it." So we started talking to friends before we know knew what we had um, about ten, you know, who wanted to talk about this further. Uh, Lumina foundation provided an opportunity for us to get together in Indianapolis in their offices, uh, which we did. And that was in June of 2015 and that got us going. And, and our, our objective at the beginning was simple, was what are the new business models? How can we experiment with new models? How can we help each other experiment with new models? How can we encourage each other? So we really just started out as a mutual support society saying, uh, you know, um, let's pilot some, some experiments. Let's uh, give each other critical, you know, constructive criticism, um, help us to each other, to overcome the impediments we would receive, which we knew there'd be resistance for change that radical in our, in our organizations um, and, and give each other moral support. We also then talked about developing programming together as one way, to try and bring down costs over the long term. Now we knew you'd have to do a lot of it to really bring down the costs, but you got to start somewhere and we so we did. In January of 2017 at CIC we made it we made it formal and uh signed agreements, started paying dues, signed uh got a consultant to help us facilitate and organize things uh who was a former president herself. Um and then it, it grew. Well, at first we agreed to keep it at no more than twenty institutions, but then uh, it got to the point where we had we had a joint program in certified financial planning. We uh, uh, we had a lot of experiments started at individual institutions, including at LaSalle, and so we decided to open it up. We re, we removed the dues, and uh, and started a course sharing program that would allow us um, a source of revenues. We also attracted quite a bit of of um, foundation support. We're, we're just shy of a million dollars so far in foundation support that we received, which provide, you know, it's covered a lot of the operating costs of uh, getting some of the joint programming up to building the platform for course sharing. Um, so it's it's uh, it's really helped us and we we still haven't used up all that money yet. Um, so it's grown to where it's now, I think the latest count is 110 institutions across, all across the country. Um, we have, um, you know, multiple examples of program collaboration and sharing uh we um we have experiments that have been going at some places for years of lower you know of ways that students can go through our institutions at lower cost meaning they pay less um figuring out how to generalize those and make those broader is you know we I, honestly we haven't figured that out yet um but that's that's the goal it's a long-term goal of the lower cost models for independent colleges consortium is to reduce the out-of-pocket cost for students thirty to fifty percent. So, in other words, they won't have to borrow as much money. Um, and um, that's a that's a tall order because you can't. We know you can't do that by just cutting costs. So, it means operating in a different way, sharing resources, uh, sharing uh, academic. Uh, you know access to our academic programs. Um, it means uh, collaborating in innovative ways in or- and teaching in different ways. Ironically, we learned something about teaching in different ways. Our faculty in particular did during the pandemic because they sure. were forced to. Um, and I'm hoping that that will accelerate our progress because the faculty have learned that there's more than one way to do this.
0: And I'd like you to elaborate, if you could, on, I think, the the, the most significant of those efforts you've done at LaSalle, specifically on, with the LaSalle Works program, in terms of thinking about a way to, um, to, to to lower the cost for students, but also to, to you know, something that would really benefit the, the institution as well.
1: Yeah, so we, uh, during this time, that the same time that um, the lower cost models was started and building we we started our own program first as a pilot and then as a real program called LaSalle Works and it's it's now in the fourth year of its rollout so the first cohort to start is now are now seniors and what LaSalle Works is is um is a a program that's more even more career oriented than our normal you know programs which are already career oriented in that the way it works is that the students, they opt to enter this program when they come into LaSalle. They have to choose that they want to do this alternative program. The first year is the same as anybody else. You, know, you come to come to class, you got, you, get, you develop friendships to last a lifetime, get to know your faculty. But the second year, in your sophomore year, you're not in residence. Whether you're a commuter or a resident student, you're, you're, you're not coming to campus. You're out in the world working at a job 16 to 20 hours a week, paid. And you're taking online courses with LaSalle at the same time. Two of those courses are supporting and, uh, and related to the job job experience. So you're taking advantage of the fact that they're working to teach them things like customer service um, principles, organizational development, supervisory subordinate relationships, um, and um and also an opportunity to reflect on their experiences and write about it. Um, and the other eight courses are courses that sophomores are likely or are required to take. And uh, because those courses are online, because the whole core, cohort's doing the same thing, they tend to be full courses or online courses, so it's less expensive for us to deliver. They're not using all the other resources on campus for that. So, so that's what allows us to reduce the amount they pay. So in, the, in their second year their scholarship or their financial aid grows $4,000 more in their junior year, $8,000 more. And in their senior year, $10,000 more. Uh, And if they're a resident student, they save the save the room and board from their sophomore year. So they, so it reduces their out of pocket costs by 22 to $40,000, depending on their personal circumstances. It changes a little depending on their financial aid status, but for lower income students, by the time they're in their junior or senior year their their out of pocket cost is basically zero and we weren't able to provide that before we were never able to get to where someone's full need was covered and if you're in the LaSalle works program and you and you persist to your junior year if you're a low income student you're you're pretty much covered
0: and and was a driver of that with the growth that you had that this was a way to increase your on campus capacity um, because you would have for these students effectively one out of four years where, where they're not there?
1: No. Uh, well, yes, sort of, cause we were full at the time. So we, we did imagine that if, you know, a fourth of the class was, was not in residence that we would have, you know, additional beds to sell. Um, but, um, but since then that's not been the case. Um, so, um, so I can't, it 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 does theoretically open up um, increase our capacity, but we have not been able to take advantage of that yet. Um, I can't even prove whether it's attracted more students to the cell yet, uh, and that's partly because of the pandemic got in the way. Well, we had hoped to do our first evaluation last summer, but you know. So if you follow it, what they do is when on junior year they come back to campus, right? Well, because that was the COVID year for the first cohort. They didn't come back. back. They're already used to doing online. We were giving reduced tuition for remote study. So naturally, they studied remotely again. So now they're back this year. Um, But, you know, so we we need them to be back. And the juniors, um, uh, the seniors are back and the, and the, the juniors are back. So now next summer, we think is the first time we can really do a solid evaluation to understand, you know, how successful it's been. And And of course we're learning things and tweaking it as we go along. Yeah.
0: And the jobs they're doing in their sophomore year, are those ones that you've arranged and are they related to their, um, their choice of degree
1: subject? They do not have to be related to their major internship have to be related to your major. They're not internships. They're jobs. They, they are, you have to, you know, get up and show up every day and go to your job and do the job so they they can literally be anything. Um, uh, yes, we help them get jobs, but it turns out we seldom have to. Most of our students already have jobs or, or can get jobs. They already have work experience. Even before LaSalle works, 70% of our students were working at jobs, either on or off campus. Some of those were just weekend jobs and they, you know, they leave campus to go work in the weekends. But, um, it turns out that, you know, um, out of, um, 80 students that you know need to find jobs um, in sophomore year. Maybe we've helped in each year. So one to five have needed help. <laughs> you know, and um, um, now things happen. Somebody, somebody, you know, it is possible to lose a job, especially during COVID. Right? And they have. To, so there have been cases where they've had to find other jobs. But you know, because they were in the program, they tended not to get laid off. You know, the employers. You know, the employers have signed up. To be part of the program, and so I think that influences them. You know, if they're if they're in a situation where they're laying off, they pretty much don't. Some people get better jobs in the middle and switch jobs. That's okay, uh, as long as they keep working. Um, so they have to keep working, and um, and so it's very interesting. Uh, so all kinds of things happen now. Some of them do get jobs in the area they're major, um, and more and more we're finding people who who sign up at the beginning already have that lined up um we had somebody who who um we had a student a high school student who uh who wanted to he was struggling between whether to go to college or work in new york because he had an ability to to work at major league baseball you know a low level position in major league baseball and um and when he found about out about LaSalle works he said wait a minute you mean for my sophomore year i could go work there and still be in college and so, So he, he, uh, he sent his deposit in the next day. (laughs) I mean, um, and, and that's happening more frequently now where, where people already have, they're planning ahead, you know, they're figuring this out that, and so those do tend to be in the area of their major. So he was a sport management major and, um, and so, um, it's happening more, but it doesn't have to be, uh, it, what we do find one of the positive things by the time they get to their internship, (laughs) they already know what they're doing they know what it's like. And so then they move into a job that is in the area of their major and they tend to do well.
0: And is there a reason, I mean, you have with Northeastern nearby, right? You have a a very strong co-op model. Was there a reason as employers are signing up, you weren't trying to get a closer alignment between the work and the, and, and the, the
1: we didn't want it to be an early internship. We didn't want it to be a paid internship. We, and, um, and, and we frankly thought that would be harder because they're, because they're just sophomores. Right. And, um, so we didn't want to make that requirement. We didn't want it to be an early internship. We wanted it to be different than that. And it's, you know, and, it, and we wanted to limit the hours because they're taking five courses at a time at the same time. So, you know, um, you have to sign agreements to do this, right? You and the employer have. The employer has to sign, just saying, we'll pay at least minimum wage, minimum wage or more, sixteen to twenty hours per week, and we'll agree to give you feedback on the student and the program. That's it. Right. And that feedback can be oral, but um, uh, but still, there you know, um, there is someone checking. Is this an appropriate place to work? Is this an appropriate employer? Um, we so we do have staff who are doing that. Great.
0: Now, Michael, fairly recently you made the transition from college to university. Can can you say a little about um, what led to that? It sounds like for quite a while you'd been in the graduate business. You'd been doing it. What, what was that uh, a fairly straightforward thing once you decided it, or was that that something that needed convincing for the the faculty or the board or?
1: It needed convincing, but not when we did it. Um, at one of our earlier strategic planning meetings, we did a module on college versus university and, um, and at the, before we even started the discussion about it, I, I asked the group, uh, which was faculty heavy, um, do, um, how many people think, you know, we should change the university, uh, 25%, yes, 75%, no. Then we had a whole discussion about what would it take, what would have to change for us to become a a university, and we came up with a whole list of things, which is published in our in our strategic planning report, the internal report, and um, and then I said, now if we achieve fifty percent of the things on this list, how many of you think you know we should change the university? Two thirds said yes, one third said no. Now that was several years before Um, we actually, and then uh, so we did it again in 2019. So I think it was that was. Uh It was 5 years later. Five years later, and we had we had a lot of those things on that list. That more than fifty percent of those things on that list had occurred, including the fact that the graduate had become a very significant element. There were many, many programs, and many more students, a significant staff uh, doing uh, both graduate degrees and professional studies, and uh, on the just starting up an online bachelor's completion program, and um, so we we'd be, we'd become more complex. So by the time we got there, university was more of a reflection of what we'd become than what we, you know, mm-hmm. aspire to. So, um, and with LaSalle Village, that, that, you know, factor, it just had become a, not, not particularly large, but more complex institution with more elements to it. We thought it would have marketing advantages and, um, and our, our, some of the older alums didn't, weren't too happy about it, but all of the younger alums were in favor of it. All the students were in favor of it. They um, they felt, Basically, it would help their resumes, and we thought maybe we thought it would help, particularly the graduate program. Now, the graduate program since then has has grown very fast, but that was also, you know, COVID happened right after that, right. so it's really again, it's really hard to evaluate whether university, you know, changing university, how beneficial it's been, because the the grad, both the graduate program could have been because people were out of jobs and because you know, or or working fewer hours or looking to change their careers um and um so that we we think that had a lot more to do with it in addition to the fact that we're uh, adding programs and we had we have a particular one particularly hot program so um so again COVID's frustrated us in our evaluation processes around that as well um
0: can can you say a little the a big part of every college president's job is fundraising. You mentioned the big increase in the endowment. I understand recently you got a quite transformative gift for the university. Can you talk about sort of what went into making that
1: possible um, and, and the gift? I think uh, in my experience and in talking to colleagues like yourself, a lot of these things are accidental or, or, uh, fortuitous. And I would say it, it's, it's not accidental, uh, but it, it, it's something that happened in the past before I was here that came to fruition, uh, in recent times. And just this Monday, uh, we had an event here, uh, on campus to name our business school after a graduate, um, a, a young woman who graduated, uh, from here in 1995, um, and, um, what happened was that this young woman had, was born with cystic fibrosis, bad, you know, really bad case, very difficult in and out of hospitals her whole life, tough, tough life, you know, to get through, but she made her way to LaSalle and at LaSalle, she got an extraordinary amount of support and help and, in, in how to deal with it. She still had to go to the hospital some of the time, but their teachers helped her and staff helped her and, and the kind of thing you can do it small place and and remember in the 90s it was still very small and um and it was it was according to her mother it was the only bright spot in her life the time she spent here was when she succeeded she did very well academically in fact she won the book award in her major you know uh and she uh and she had a real social life uh which you know up to that point she hadn't had so so um in uh, talking over the years with her mother, who was a modest donor, uh, you know, but I visited and and um, you know she told me about how uh, the young woman's name was Michael. Uh, Michael's life was um, was a tough life. Afterwards, she continued, you know, have trouble. She she got married. She worked uh, as a marketing executive, but she had to have a double lung transplant. Didn't work. She and she passed away eight years after she graduated. So the way her mother, and that was difficult for her parents, you know, and that's an old, only child. And, um, but, but her mother just remembered that the one time in her life, she was happy in life was when she was at LaSalle. So in 2018, I get a call from her. So, you know, four to 20 years later, 15 years after she died, uh, get a call from her mother and say, um, you know, she had, they had this family foundation that had been created by the mother's parents, to Michael's grandparents, when they when they retired, um, and they had subsequently passed away, um, that that the mother ran you know ran the found the family foundation, and for reasons we don't have to go into, they needed to liquidate the foundation. The foundation was largely made up of stock, stock in the private company, a family-owned private company, a construction company. And, um, so she distributed that stock to two organizations, one that does Alzheimer's research because her parents both died of Alzheimer's and the other to LaSalle. And that was great because that, and we got, you know, we, we put it in our, you know, the stock certificate in our safe and we valued it based on a third party evaluation. Um, and, um, counted that in our endowment two years later, I was able to negotiate with that company to sell that piece of paper back to them for six point six million dollars, all cash upfront. And for LaSalle, that's the largest. That if you call that a gift, I mean, the you know um, that would make it the largest gift in the history of the college. And we thought that was deserving of a significant naming opportunity, and chose to name the business school, the Mo- Michael Longy 95 School of Business, which just happened this week. Um, and that's, that's been one of the elements that's added to our endowment, um, along with the fact that during, uh, during COVID, we haven't, we've, we haven't drawn excess money from the endowment. In fact, we, we've drawn less than we normally draw, uh, and, um, and the market returns have been high too. So our, uh, our financial underpinning has gotten nothing but stronger in the last few years, even while operating budgets have just been very difficult to manage.
0: Sure. Um, And speaking of difficult to manage, you know, for all college presidents, none of us thought we were going to be in the public health business. But these last 18 months have obviously been a, a huge learning experience. You've had the additional challenge of having a a full retirement facility on, on your campus. Can you talk about how you've navigated that? And and you mentioned that you're hoping there will be some lasting benefits that come from this. What do you see that looking like for, for LaSalle?
1: Well, I hope I can remember all those questions. Sorry. Uh, since I'm of an age where I qualify to enter LaSalle Village myself now. Um, The university benefited from a number of things, including the fact that we have access to reasonably priced testing in Massachusetts. Um, But uh, we also benefit from the fact that LaSalle Village had to move quickly and learn things fast. And we learned from them things that we were then able to apply that caused the LaSalle University to be one of the safe, their campus to be one of the safest places on earth. (laughs) LaSalle Village wasn't at the beginning. In that first month, April of 2020, we actually lost six people. Now those people were all in decline, but the but COVID put them over to the edge, and um, and they quickly had to adjust and and became a leader in how senior living communities should um, protect themselves um, and um, put in protocols and space in procedures and operations and um, you know visitors didn't get to come for a long time, including family members couldn't come. People were stuck in their in their apartments, but as I said, we kept we had the fortune, good fortune of having closed circuit TV in everybody's apartment. So the, the educational classes were able to continue through closed circuit and, and through zoom. Um, they, the residents themselves invented ways to be socially interactive, even while they were physically separated. Uh, so we learned a lot of things that very quickly we had to apply, uh, at the university. Uh, and we did, uh, and, um, because of the, You know the spring break that came that we the people did not come back for that spring anyplace right here. So by the next fall we had our act together. We knew about how to do the protocols, how to how to talk to the community about about um, uh, adhering to the protocols, and we had the testing. Uh, and we were able to test everybody twice a week. Um, and that, uh, that allowed us to have extremely low infection rates. We never had an outbreak. We never had anybody go to the hospital. Uh, and after that April, after that first month, that April 20, that also was true at the village. Mm -hmm. Haven't lost anybody else. Haven't had, uh, really had, we had one person shortly in the hospital. Um, but, um, but really have been able to fend off, uh, this deadly disease for that whole period since and that's uh, continued right into through this semester. So one, you can say we've been fortunate, but two, um, two, I think we've, we've, our community has come together. Um, Our COVID-19 task force has, um, has, you know, staff and faculty and experts and, and it has LaSalle village residents on it, including an immunologist, a virologist, a public health expert, you know, uh, you know um, who are, are really up there in terms of their experience and knowledge, and that's been a huge benefit.
0: Um, I know with the Low-Cost Models Consortium, many of the other things you've done, you've really been thinking about the changing competitive environment for smaller private institutions. I'm curious, what do you see ahead for us in the next decade? Um, You know, There seem to be an awful lot of trends out there that are, if anything, only going to intensify the pressures on them. How do you see it unfolding in terms of you know consolidations, closures, new business models?
1: So obviously, as the founder of the lower cost models consortium, I, I I think that the model we do have to come up with new models. The I do think the business model is broken, which means that the that the habit of increasing tuition every year and increasing financial aid with creeping tuition discounts. It, uh, there comes a point where that doesn't work financially. Um, it affects your ability to improve the quality of your student services, your of the student experience. So that has to change. And I said, ultimately it, there, there aren't that many ways to change it because we can't cut to it. We don't have, despite what you might read in the press, we don't have too many employees. We don't pay them too much. They can all make more money doing something else. Um, so you can't cut to it. So you have to do things differently, including teach differently. And I think on, and during the pandemic, and I think this part of your last question is we, we did learn about, about different ways of teaching and ways to make more use of technology. We all added technology in our classrooms. For instance, we now record all classes. Through, through our learning management system and another piece of technology, we record all classes. Well, it turns out, now students can go back and review the class. If they miss class, they can watch, no more of the sharing notes stuff. They can go watch the class. And um, that, that alone, that one thing changes the world for the students. Uh, there are many such examples, but the main one is that the faculty learned a lot about adjusting their teaching to the different learning styles of individual students. There's been talk about that forever, ever since uh, Howard Gardner's book about multiple intelligences came out. But now faculty are actually learning how to do it. And that that's a game changer um, in terms of how well students do. Ultimately, it should affect retention. Um, But it also means that faculty understand that there are different ways to do it because they're going to have to teach differently in order to get the cost down in a way that uh, will work. Now, you asked about affiliations and combinations. I truly believe that has to happen. We have some experience with that. We've done shared services with two other institutions that were hugely successful in terms of improving services while saving money. Um, twice, we, pro- we provide services to other, other colleges where they saved money, we made money, and the, and the level of service went up. Um So, I know that that can be done, but I have also learned it's really hard to do. I've been talking to other institutions now for a long time about shared services or about even more significant combinations than just shared services. I can get a lot of presidents who are interested and see the benefits and want to do it, and they run up against boards who aren't ready for it or don't want to hear it. Um, Recent experience, uh, another a uh, president who really believes it's the right thing. And, and we agreed the thing to do was to get me in front of their board so I could just explain it to them, answer the questions. Cause I've been working at this a long time. They refused to meet with me almost cause they were afraid I might convince them, <laughs> you know? And, um, and I've had that experience multiple times. I had experience with one board before uh, where, you know, I really felt we could have helped them. And I told them, well, okay, and they they canceled my appearance for the board a day before. And I said, okay, but don't come back to me six months later because I I can see from your numbers it's going to be too late. Sure enough, six months later they came back to me. I said, it's too late. You're out of money, and they closed. And they didn't have to. Um, so uh, it's a very difficult area to to actually take action. There are some you know examples. There are a lot of examples that are put out there as positive examples that are not what I'm talking about because the, in the process, an institution disappeared. I don't think that's necessary. So in our area, we, um, uh, no, no, we, um, Wheelock, Wheelock College disappeared. I mean, they said you know they merged with BU. No, they they got subsumed, and uh, BU is going to figure out what to do with their land. Pine Manor kind of gave them themselves and their and their uh, real estate to Boston College. And Boston College will exploit that land, but Pine Manor won't exist anymore. Um, But That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about combinations where uh, the institutions can continue to exist under their own uh, name and legacy with their uh, own accreditation, uh, but benefit from being aligned with other institutions so that you can share services, you can um, align your academic offerings to be more efficient, so you can share courses and, and students. Uh, you can improve the the, uh, the options that students have. Um, there are a lot of things you can do if you can if you could really do that. And in some cases, you that that combination could be in a place where the reputation of one of the of one of the institutions could rub off on the other and help it actually, uh, become more attractive to students. I think there are many such instances. If you could get the boards to see that vision and, and execute on it and understand that in most cases, financially there's no risk involved because almost all private colleges have underlying assets that are not on the balance sheet, primarily their real estate, uh, all the Massachusetts um, places that re, uh, colleges that recently closed, they closed because they ran out of cash. They couldn't pay their bills anymore. They couldn't make payroll. But they closed. They sold their assets. They paid off all their liabilities, secured, unsecured. Every liability was paid, and there was money left over every single time. And uh, there's something wrong with that picture, right? Right? There's something wrong with that picture. And, um, and if, if we could get trustees to recognize that, there's, a, there's ways to take advantage of it by, by combining organizations under a common umbrella um, that shared services that, you know, uh, when you do that, if you, if, you, if you actually have a change in control, you can put that real estate on the balance sheet. Uh, cause it, it qualifies as an acquisition. And, uh, so your financial profile changes, your, uh, credit rating changes, your ability to borrow money changes. <laughs> and, um, um, there, there's huge benefits to doing it, but, um, you know, there's a great reluctance to give up any kind of control, uh, or, or even the perception of control, um, that's, that's holding us back as a as an industry. Uh, and this applies in public, too. This is not just privates I'm talking about. You do see some of the publics doing it. Georgia, they merged a bunch of the state colleges. Just had
0: it here in Pennsylvania. Three, yeah, three have, in the west and three in the
1: east. You have it there. Connecticut is trying to make it happen. Yep. So you, you, some of the publics are actually doing it. Um, but but, you but also
0: slow and painful, of course, because of the public process around it, too.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's very, yep. very difficult. But... Um, um, so I, I think, you know, why shouldn't we be doing, why shouldn't we be getting our act together and helping each other, supporting each other by becoming part of a common organization? Just, just the, just the sharing of expenses, uh, can, can be a huge amount. Mm-hmm. Might be a little long for someone to listen to. <laughs>
0: um, so in terms of the trends that are disrupting higher ed, I'm, I'm curious about a, a couple of others um, as you look at forward. One is sort of the entrance of the, the mega universities, the ASU, Southern New Hampshire in your backyard, Western Governors. Um, you know, we, we dealt with, and I think they're on the wane now, the for-profits. But, but this presence of places that are aspiring to be 300,000 or more students, um, and, and obviously having scale, but with higher quality, I think, than, than we saw before, how, how much of an influence do you think that is for the smaller privates? And then what, what, what do you think about in terms of, of sub-degree level things, certificates, micro-credentials, other qualifications?
1: So you, you tend to ask several questions at one time. So the uh, so about the mega universities, um, you know, I, I you know, if we don't recognize that as a wake up call, it's not just that they're mega; it's how they're doing it, right? Because they are teaching in different ways, right? They're they are delivering at lower cost, and um, we you know, in our traditional methods, we don't hold up well against that. Now there are people that the, the The contradiction here is there's a whole bunch of people who still want that residential experience and their parents want it it's just that they can't necessarily afford it uh or not enough of them can afford it for to sustain this you know the number of residential colleges that are around so at LaSalle we have that problem and that's that's one of the issues around LaSalle works we about 20 to 25 percent of our each class enters LaSalle works a bunch of them drop out after the first year, not out of LaSelle, but out of the program after the first year because they say, you know, I love it here on campus. I want to come back, I want to stay on campus. And they agree to pay the higher price to come back. Um so we're perceived as being a traditional coeducation, you know, secular residential college, university, right? We're we're perceived as that. That works that makes it hard for us to, to convince people, Hey, we got to look at things a different way. We got to, we, we're, we're going to have to, we have to compete with these mega universities. You know, we, um, and, and there's an opportunity for, it because it's the, the reason the university of Phoenix isn't what it used to be isn't just because, um, of the quality a lot of places they had good quality. The, the issue, they just became too big, and like anything huge the the quality of the services begins to erode or at least become highly inconsistent if we got our act together we could take advantage of that because our quality is very high and we give individual institution to every student attention to every student including our online students and if you talk to our to our uh graduate students who, gra- who when they graduate they'll tell you that you know that Oh my God, this is, some of them have experienced Southern New Hampshire. They say, this is so much better. And, and it's really because they get the individual attention. They, you know, it's, the quality is higher. And so I, I think we, we can take some of those students back if we, um, if we could figure out how, um, <coughs> so that was, uh, the mega university, yeah. uh, question. What was the second part of the question?
0: Just wondering about things like micro credentials, yes, right. um, small, smaller, shorter qual- qualifications.
1: So that's another another one of these things is easier said than done. Uh, we have some of it. Uh, we have more certificates. Uh, we have uh, you know some badges that you can. Um, they we're trying to make some of them stackable, but um, they're, they're not really obviously stackable yet. They're they are stackable, but not obvious. Um, there are some ways you fall into it accidentally. For instance, we have a, a deal with the ministry of education in, um, Antigua where, uh, where we're teaching a set of four courses to every teacher in Antigua, every public school teacher in Antigua and they, the ministry of education pays us for that. Well, and they get a certificate they can then they could then continue into the masters degree and 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 um and have a head start you know have have a four course head start and a, f- a few of them have so there's a place where they you know it kind of sort of ad hoc became sackable um credentials we're into credentials. In our n- most recent plan, it says we will develop a credential in every program that's tied to industry and sponsored by industry. So for instance, I'm currently working with the biotech industry on a credential that they would sponsor that our students could earn that would say when they graduate, they're ready to step right into a particular job in the biotech industry. And, um, and that takes some work. There are several, a number of areas where we already have it. Um, some of it built in like teacher education, it already exists, right? Athletic training, it already exists, but, um, but, and we have a couple other areas where we already have it, but we're now, we are now pledged ourselves to develop it in every single major where there's a credential. And the, the, uh, I, my hope is that that credential will appear on their transcript and they can put it on their resume. Um, we have, um, we have some badges. So you, you can get a badge in writing proficiency, you know, that'll say, you know, employers care about, can you, can you write a business letter, a, a, a proposal, a presentation? Well, we have a badge that says the faculty have determined, yeah, you're proficient, not just, okay, you're proficient at that. Um, we, we're in the process of implementing one uh, to say, you have proven, you as a student have proven your ability to be collaborative. Now we do a, a lot of work by teams, but and uh and collaboration and teamwork is very desired in in the world of work today. So if we can if we can um make the claim that our that a particular student has proven their their ability to do that, we think that'll help them when they go out in the and build their careers. So um now that one's not stackable. That's that's something they They should be getting, anyway, really, every LaSalle student should be able to earn one of those because of the way we teach. Um, But they have to go through a process, you know, to, they have to go through a process. They have to take the initiative to go through the process and get certified. Um, And uh, so, yes, credentials, we're committed to really making that a more serious part of our, of, of what you go through as an undergrad. Well, we we have it at a graduate level, too, um, and uh, as a way to fit with our career readiness kind of focus.
0: Great. So I just wanted to wind up with a few questions generally about leadership. You had a really unconventional path to being a, a, a college president, even though you'd been aspiring to it since you were one in, in that Antioch house. Um, what What of those prior experiences do you think? has been most helpful for you in being successful in the role over this last fifteen years
1: you mean the experience of from before I was a college president Yes. so um well there's a lot right and uh, for instance i there were th- you know i when I started I went to the Harvard seminar for new presidents I made forty six friends and and we followed each other and and even at the seminar, I saw a whole lot of the areas where I I knew a lot of what was going on I I knew what I knew as much or more than what the teacher was teaching and a lot of the others didn't most of the others didn't and uh because I ran companies for 25 years for instance what do you do when you have a sexual harassment case you've been a president long enough you know what to do but most new presidents don't know I knew exactly what to do we had in my first year we had a data breach you know I knew exactly what to do and how, you know, what the, what the state requires, who to call, what to do, how they, you had to op, move fast. You had to notify people. You had to be out there open and transparent about it. And therefore it ended up costing us $34,000. There was another institution that had the break at the same time that did not do it right. It cost them $16 million. That was a bigger institution, but they didn't take the right steps. You know, um, yeah so some of this sounds like blocking and tackling and it is. I told you about I had a, I, I knew about how to diversify a workforce. All right? I had a technique that had that I had used in the corporate world. I had won awards for it. Um and so I instituted it when I came here. And what it is is when we whenever we are hiring for a position, we are required to have a diverse candidate in the finalist pool before we can make an offer. Then you make an offer to whoever the best person is you know, so you're, it's not reverse discrimination because you're not going out and saying you have to hire a minority for this position. No, you have to have a qualified minority. And in then in the, what happens is actuarially a certain amount of the time they will be the best fit. Right. Or sometimes you won't get the first one. And the second one, you'll take the second one. And, uh, cause you'll have good, good candidates and you know, they're all qualified by definition and that slows things down. At first people had problems with that. They got some pushback. I don't get any pushback anymore because people have learned yeah, this really works. <laughs> yeah. well, and here, here in Pittsburgh, we call it the Rooney Rule because you know that's what the NFL adopted yeah. to
0: when they realized that you know they had a predominantly minority workforce, but almost no leadership. And so you know, been, Art Rooney.
1: Yeah. yeah, they've been a little inconsistent in in the application. Uh, yeah, well, monitoring or enforcing that rule. Yeah. Yes. But in my case, you know, I had to enforce it for a long time. You know, so I uh, they had when, before they could fill a job, they had to come to me. Right. And, I, and they had to certify that they had, you know, um, sometimes they would say, you know, they, well, we can't tell. <laughs> and I, and I said, it's too bad. You, you got to find out. Um, and, um, so, um, and it turns out you can, I mean, sometimes you get, well, well, there are hardly any, you know, minorities in in the development world. You can't, you just can't find a, a high level leader. You know, when you are looking for a new vice president for, for university advancement, they said no, there, there just aren't any people. And this is this is from a search firm, right? I said, well, you're not going to get paid. I told you this up front. You're not going to get paid. You know, when they present the first set of candidates, there was not a minority. I said, yeah, forget. It. Hold, hold, hold this. One. Went back out, and sure enough, they found somebody that was highly qualified It's really good. Now we, and then became a finalist. We did not choose that person. That search firm placed him at the universe at, at Berkeley, right after that. <laughs> wow. <laughs> you, so know, they you and, uh, and they, and now that search firm always has minority candidates in every pool. So it's not so that they, they picked up on that and they, and now it's become a, a selling point for their service. Yep
0: when you look back um on these 15 years what would you say was the most challenging sort of issue that you faced and how how did you address
1: it well well covid i mean i mean uh including the most challenging is to, is to keep your own spirits up, right? Because you got to be the leader. you got to keep people on a positive, you know, looking at a positive viewpoint. And, and, you, and through COVID, because it lasted much longer than any of us expected, that was hard to keep that going. You know, uh, it was amazing how our communities pulled together in the same direction. You know, I went, I went over a year without a single complaint about anything. Unbelievable, not from a student or faculty member. And I always said, you know, when I get my first complaint about parking or food, I'll know we're back. Right. Sure enough, in the last month, it's happened, both of those. <laughs> so, I, and so people said, oh, we got these complaints. I said, what do you complain about? <laughs> that means we're back. This is good. <laughs> now that, you know, we can have trivial complaints is a good thing. So, um, no, but seriously, um, you know, making decisions when you don't know whether you're making the right or wrong thing, where you have very little information to go on, where you feel like you're guessing, uh, where you have to, you know, adjust and undo decisions you make, um, that's, that's foreign. You know, we don't, that was unusual before COVID and then it became standard. Um, and, uh, but we did a good job of keeping our spirits, keeping it up positive. We, we, we did a strategic plan in the middle of it because we, we got to look forward. We got, so, but then this, then the Delta variant came and that to personally that was tough because i told people just get us all we we got to all be vaccinated and we'll be good to go we'll have our social lives back and then august the delta variant data comes out and i have to pull back and i have to say well i know i said that but i also said we have to be flexible things can happen but it it was discouraging yeah uh, to me I mean, I mean to me and now yeah to, to everybody no question. so do you, do you do you share your feelings with people and say look yeah. I'm discouraged too. I, you know, I'm frustrated, discouraged, or do you, or do you keep that, you know, positive attitude going And, and, um, or in my case, I tried to do both, frankly, I th- it would be disingenuous. I thought to, 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 you know, hide my own feelings in that case. And, uh, cause it, um, and it got in the way, you know, I was looking forward to getting my job back. And here there's still today, I'm making decisions all the time about that are because of the directly or indirectly because of, of COVID that um, that take up time, so uh, that get in the way of my doing my regular job, or God forbid, I want to start a new initiative, and we have a great idea for a new initiative, but when we went to the community to discuss it, we got a lot of pushback, and some of it was legit. I mean, it's all legit, but but some of it was, I think I disagree with. But the one I can't, I can't I can't fight back against is, hey, look. We have, all, we have all this stuff loaded on us already. We just can't take on a new initiative right now. We happen to be in our self-study year for our 10-year accreditation. We have the COVID stuff. We have the new strategic plan we're implementing. How are you going to put another initiative on top of that? We just, we just, you just can't do it. We're all, we're all fatigued. We're worn out by COVID. What do you say? You know, uh, Normally, my, my community would be, be all over it. I mean, the, I, they even like the idea. You know, they, they, they want to do the – but this and, um, you know, as college presidents, what's our job? Our job is to stir the pot, is to keep things evolving. You know, we got to keep our organizations changing even though change is difficult for people. And we always have to measure that. We always have to be careful not to overload people and burn them out. But that's more true right now, and that's frustrating. Yep.
0: Yeah, it's that exhaustion factor of people thinking we were through and then it, it's going on for another year. And I think you've already touched on it a bit there. But my final question was to, add, you know, now, now that you've, you've had the experience, done this for, for, for 15 years, what, what advice do you give to folks who are thinking about being college presidents, university presidents, in terms of, of thinking about the role or, or, or things that they, they need to do to be successful?
1: Okay. And answering that question, I'm going to assume that that the pandemic doesn't last forever in its right. current form, yeah. right? And this that is it,
0: not a pandemic question.
1: Right. That, that So let's assume we've at least gotten it down to endemic stage like the flu. Um, and I, I would do it by telling a, a story about having discussions with people like you, you know, my, you know, we talk a lot among each other. And when we, frankly, when we get together, we, we talk about our problems and our challenges and our frustrations. And, you know, a lot of times they're saying, Oh, my board is this, or my faculty is that, you know, and then you we, know, we share these and commiserate with each other, but then the conversation ends with, but it's the best job I ever had. I had great jobs all along. I ran a New York TV station. You can't imagine how exciting and daily and how that's different every day. It's a great job. Pays a lot of money. Um, I got to start companies and, you know, build them up into something significant. uh, You know, going from 400 to 2,000 employees. I mean, um, I've been very fortunate. to have great jobs. This is the best one. And the reason it's the best one is because the rewards are daily. Because the reward is... Being able to see those students grow and develop and change in front of your eyes every day uh, and know that you're taking them from late adolescence to early adulthood and, and, and getting them to a place where they can go out and enter the economic mainstream and build their own families and put a roof over their head and provide educational opportunities for the next generation. So it's like earning a living and giving back at the same time. It's the best job I ever had. Well, I
0: can't think of a better note to end on. Michael, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. It's great to speak with you and wish you all the best in uh, getting to this endemic stage and, and, and being able to move forward with your new initiatives.
1: Well, it's been fun. Thanks a lot, David.